Welcome to the International Buzz Podcast brought to you by WordBeat. I'm your host, Robert Rogi. My co-host, Tanya Faulkner, can't be here, uh, but we do miss her. Uh, we are approaching 10,000 listens to the podcast. So if you enjoy the podcast, help us get over 10,000 and share some of your favorite episodes. Uh, today, we're talking with Anna Richards about cognitive debriefing. Uh, Anna is a project manager at Vita Access. She has a background in language services for the life sciences industry, with particular specializations in medical translations, linguistic validation of uh, PROs, and translations for clinical trials. Her latest uh, work involves real-world evidence studies with a focus on rare diseases. So uh, welcome to the show, Anna. Hi, Robert. Thank you very much for that lovely introduction. I Did, it, what, did I cover everything? <laughs> you did. Yeah, you covered it all. Yeah. Cool, cool. So we're going to be talking today about cognitive debriefing. Um, so like, uh, but before we do that, uh, can you tell us a little bit about Vita Access and uh, what, what you do there? Yeah, I'll just correct you on your pronunciation of the company name. Oh. So it's, it's Vita Access. Oh. Um, almost like a V-Y-T-E. Okay. Um, Vita Access. Um, the idea was having a Vita, Vita um, yeah. as life like the Italian, uh, the Latin, sorry, yeah. life, and then access, um, because we work on quality of life, real world evidence, digital studies. Right. Um, so a lot of our processes are going into assessing the quality of life. Uh, with a, We have a large inf- emphasis on rare diseases. So a lot of our studies cover multiple countries um, and analyze these uh, kind of the daily living and the quality of life of people with certain conditions. Okay, cool. Yeah, sorry about that. The I, I guess, you know, I speak Spanish and I lived in Spain for a long time. So sometimes when I see words, I default to the Spanish pronunciation, it's which is strange. Yeah, I completely understand. It's like, uh, well, like when I first saw it, I saw vitamin, but like vit access. Right, uh, right. Rather than vite, yeah. Yeah, and see, I think vit, because like vita. Yeah. Well, okay. That that's cool, and it's a great name for a company, actually. <laughs> so, so w- let's get started with cognitive debriefing. Um, what what is cognitive debriefing? So, the cognitive debriefing um, is usually done on a patient reported outcome. So, these are so it could be questionnaires or symptom diaries. They they are the questionnaires that are asking about the usually the quality of life of a person with a condition, and the cognitive debriefing step is this interview and analysis step where we try and find out if the participants who will be completing these questionnaires fully understand the questionnaire. And when it's used in uh, languages, we're actually testing that the same equivalent of the source version is being understood in the translated version. So we will then test it in the target country, in the target locale. Um, So that's like a very, very high level overview of what, what it is. But it also, it's a part of a, a much bigger process within lo- uh, linguistic validation. So you, we've got these like full uh, range of steps with um, double forward translation, um, back translations, back translation analysis. And then it's usually beyond that point that we then go into uh, actually getting an in-country investigator, which is um, usually a lead linguist who's been trained in cognitive debriefing. And then they actually in the country on that specific language, um, they will recruit participants for the study, um, usually around five five people. And then they start to do the interviews from that point. Um, 
Yeah. So that's where we start to work out where the understandings or the misunderstandings actually, we're trying to see where what's not being understood right? Um, and how we can make it so that it is an equivalent to the source and how it conveys every nuance imaginable. Right. Yeah. You know, that's, it's so challenging because like, even if you weren't doing a global trial and you were just doing a local trial, and it was just like one language, it's it's still difficult um, to get the question exactly right, I'm sure. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, they're really trying to analyze that what is the end point that they want to get out from this? What is yeah. the data that they want to receive from this? So the actual questionnaires themselves are created by a large team. There's usually clinicians, there's uh, enormous um, patient groups that are involved in it. And it's it's a very patient-centric approach in that they have a lot of input. They have, it's constantly analyzed. So the source version is essentially this perfect version of, of that patient reported outcome mm-hmm. because it's the most heavily tested. Um, and then it, it, when it gets translated, those tests still happen, but on a smaller basis. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. So I guess we, we've covered like what it is and uh, at what stage it takes place because it's taking place after the the back translations have occurred and after the linguistic validation has occurred of the of the interview questions, right? Yeah. So so can you tell us some anecdotes and stories uh, that you might have about cognitive debriefing? Um, because I, I guess there's uh, I don't know like it's, it's good to have a sense of humor uh, <laughs> in, in yes, there. Yes, definitely. So in general, um, there's so many aspects to cognitive debriefing because there's a mixture of ages, there's a mixture of, um, you'll have male and female ratio, different professions. Um, you can even, but you'll have different conditions or they might specify that they want to only test on healthy participants. So it comes with its own background of, of, of issues that can happen. So essentially what, what happens is the interview will sit down with with a participant and ask them questions about the questionnaire. So they'll be reading the questionnaire and they'll say, hey, gosh, could you rephrase that? Or um, could you give examples from your day that you were thinking about? Or how would you act that instruction out? Um, and this is where we really start to realise where the issues are happening. So we've had it in the past where we had a, um, a questionnaire that was done in, made into Japanese, but it was quite a complex questionnaire. Um, and things really need to be changed and stripped down to a lower level for um, like lower level readers to understand. Um, and then they've actually, they thought as well for another questionnaire um, in Japanese, that same one, to use furigana. And they, and they then brought it in because furigana, um, for anyone who's not sure what this is, it's actually a Japanese reading aid. So it contains smaller kana, little syllabic, syllabic characters, and then they put them next to the kanji. So it's like tiny symbols next to the main character that help uh, a child or a learner or someone who's not um, doesn't have a high literacy level to pronounce the word. And as soon as they're able to pronounce it, they're actually able to understand it or at least make a better picture of what it is. Um, and this is like used quite often in, in Japanese for children or learners materials. So that was something that we didn't work out until cognitive debriefing stage as the children weren't able to read the kanji because they were too complex. Yeah. But these things, sometimes they don't appear until we do these like active testing in a country with the children or with with another adult group. You don't see these things being not understood because a lot of the people who are working on the translations, they're linguists. They've, they've got a fabulous knowledge. I mean, they've, they, they, it's harder for them to see what, where the gaps are in understanding. Right. Oh, that, yeah, so that's it, really interesting. Yeah. 
and that's that's sort of like the area where um, cognitive debriefing comes in because you can just see where the, there are issues. Um, and for example, when we we noticed with like the furigana being needed for Japanese translations, um, there were also then considerations made for Chinese languages. So they use something called bopomofo, which is similar. It's again um, symbols next to the main symbols to as like a phonetic notation to sound it out. And as soon as they sometimes they may have heard the word but never seen it written, um, they need to, they need to use this then to help them read the read the text. Right, um, right. Yeah, I bet. Um, I mean, do, doing these kinds of studies for 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 children um, must have its its own huge set of uh, of difficulties in terms of communication. Yes, definitely. We've had a, a few in the past where um, so children have to be accompanied by an adult. It's it's often quite hard to have just one on one because of just rules. Really, <laughs> I mean, it's quite understandable. Um, and the parent will usually want to jump in and say, oh, yeah, they've understood that. Yeah, no worries. But that's not the point of the practice. Like the exercise is to see if the child understood it and if they can reword it in their own words to show their understanding. So it's to try and get this like delicate balance of, yes, I am directing the interview at the child. So you need to kind of be a bit forceful with the parent to not jump in and, and give their opinion on if they think their child can understand it or not. Right. So, so just to clarify for the listeners, like these interviews usually take place in person, right? Yes, that, that is the most um, efficient way of doing it because you can, the interviewer is actually looking at the participant and they're watching their body language, their facial expressions. You can even, like when you're face to face, you can just see if someone's like blushing, if they feel uncomfortable. Mm. Um, and it's all of this is a language as well. It's yeah. not, I mean, a lot of our movement, our gestures, are another way of expressing ourselves like for for Italians to not be able to gesticulate would be like to take away half of the language um, for example <laughs> and this is this is true in most languages and you, and you really need to be there in person um i mean skype is a good equivalent and i think in this this new age of digital it is becoming more and more common but they still ask to see the person so it's still video rather than over the phone, because over the phone, you just, you're losing half of the, the intonations. I mean, I'm gesticulating now. You can't see me, but I am. <laughs> missing all of it. We're missing. I know. <laughs> um, yeah, we've thought about doing this show on video, um, but uh, I will see. So is it helpful to have the interviewer um, be from that country? I guess they have to be in order to, to understand what the, so, Okay. Yes. So the importance, if it's coming from a English uh, questionnaire, then being translated into other languages, um, it is important that the interviewer is an in-country one who can mm -hmm. speak fluently the, the target language right. and, and English, because they often then translate back into English to discuss and analyse, because a lot of the analysis then goes on to be compared with the original source mm -hmm. and the concept elaboration. So the concept elaboration is another tool that is used but not shown to the participants this is just used for the people who are analyzing the, the end report they use the concept collaboration to see what the author of the questionnaire intended the meaning to be and they'll just check okay yeah yeah that's that was understood mm -hmm. by these participants and so on and it but again it's it's something that has been brought up before that um, maybe we do need this kind of like a visual aspect as well to the questionnaires because one in one uh, load of interviews that was done in Indian languages, which was all about the body, some Indian languages don't distinguish between upper arm, forearm and wrist. Mm. 
So, uh, yeah, um, Croatians like that. Like uh, they have one word for all of that too, which for me is very strange. <laughs> but we, we think it's strange because we have separated them out into different parts. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you think about it, there's, uh, there's so many languages where they may not have needed to separate them out into different segments. Yeah. Um, because once you say arm, you still know roughly where the part is. It's, it's still a limb. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did need to in this interview, uh, this particular questionnaire, because it was um, a pain in the wrist, mm-hmm. um, pain found at the elbow and things like that. So this is where CD, uh, cognitive reference, sorry, I call it CD, um, is, is really important because we were identifying that, oh, wait, hang on. They're not going to know what we mean because they're asking the same question three times. They're saying like, how is the pain in your upper arm? How is the pain in your forearm? How is the pain in your wrist? And they were all being translated the same, right, almost right. the same way. So this is where it gets a bit bigger because they'll say, oh, actually, for some languages, we will need to produce some images to really identify that that's the part that they mean. Right, right. Um, or they could say something like, um, rephrase it, the part between the hand and the arm joint. So on, on the interviewing side, like, uh, I guess it must be difficult to find someone who can who can pick up on all these signals and do a good interview. Like, I, I'm sure that they, like you mentioned, they have training. But like, what what kind of person or profile do you look for when you're looking for a good interviewer? Well, usually we look for someone who is already a linguist that is usually mm-hmm. fluent in, say, English and then the target language. And also someone who has sort of a background, um, maybe in, in interviewing already. But it is something that can be trained. Like a lot of um, our interviewers have been trained by us. Mm-hmm. Um, over the over the phone, over video call, even face to face, if they've been local enough, and it's to go through and they, usually we interview them, so then they have to go interviewing us back, mm-hmm. and then we explore that what they should be looking for, what did they miss, and and it's, it's like a role play training um, where it's quite fun actually because we can just be a bit awkward, be a bit standoffish, only answer with one word, and they yeah. need to learn how to coax answers out of people because people are shy. Like some some people can be really shy doing these. I mean, oh, the, yeah. con- the content of the questionnaires can be really quite embarrassing. Um, it's often like there's there's a lot of them about bowel movements. Um, there's a lot about the, them about about sex as well. Like some of them are just they're quite an uncomfortable uh, thing to rephrase. Right. There's a lot of giggling. There's a lot of um, blushing <laughs> and it's the type of thing that we need to we need to push through that it is it is good fun and I think sometimes you just need to get that out of the out of the way and have a, like a really good giggle like read it through and say okay it is a bit of a rude one um let's let's see how it goes but but in general at the best we see that the best interviews really grow into it and they they learn that okay I actually I need to double check that and um, even if they are embarrassed about it, um, maybe ask them how they would say it in a different way Right. Um, that would, wouldn't um, make them feel embarrassed, um, which was a, another one that we had with, we did have a, like a questionnaire completely on bowel movement mm-hmm. um, that was done in uh, various uh, Arabic variants. So it was um, like Arabic for Egypt, um, Morocco, Saudi Arabia, right. there's a few few different places. And um, and they're all different versions of Arabic. So you can't just have one Arabic is all. Um, it, it doesn't work like that. Um, so we did tre- test them on every single locale. And a lot of the questions were, were seemed like really offensive because the way they were written was quite quite medical, quite blunt, mm-hmm. um, got straight to the point, um, but it was quite embarrassing. So a lot of them had to say, I just can't answer that. Like I, I just wouldn't answer it in a questionnaire. It's too rude. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so it was just kind of trying to make it as polite as possible, but still convey the same meaning. Right. So things like um, farting would have to be changed to their equivalent of like passing wind. Oh, so okay. Yeah. So it wasn't just seen as like too, or like, you know, if they said just like bear out flatulence, they would be like, oh, I can't say that. Um, it would be, <laughs> yeah, they, they'd need to make it so that in their culture, it was a bit more, I don't know, some some places made it a bit more like child friendly. So, you know, changes something to belly, that kind of thing. And, um, and but in general, they kind of had to make it less um I suppose make it more culturally sensitive. Yeah. So, like, when the that's funny when the when the translator is translating that, do they does does the translator ever say, okay, my recommendation here is that this is uh, not gonna not gonna fly because, for example, it's too rude or it's too um, explicit. Uh, yes. Does the translators, yeah, yeah, they 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 usually the 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 they have a lead linguist on the text. And they will give a lot of input on every element. So they'll say that um, like this is a taboo subject in this country. So, for example, some some subjects you just can't talk about um, suicide, like as in parts of Asia, you just you really can't talk about that. Hmm. Um, and again, with we had another one where it was a, it was a sex questionnaire, and we did it in multiple countries. And some countries just thought it was absolutely fine, no problem at all, mm-hmm. happy with the questions. Um, and then we found that in, in Japan, they weren't that comfortable with the questions and actually were considering re- not having some, of the, not including some of the questions entirely, mm-hmm. which doesn't work, really work in a, in a global study because you get this like missing data. Right. So it, it's trying to be, and, and we've report all of this back obviously to the um, authors and the people who are leading the studies, just so they know and they're aware because you can't edit the questionnaires to like not include questions, basically. They have to be whole. Um, right. So it's just it's treading a line between being culturally sensitive uh, and still creating the best version that you can in that language. Right, right, and probably you know overcoming w- what's left by being a great interviewer. I guess that that loosening up the the interviewee can can help you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, oh, right. you can really discover some really interesting features. Like so. Um, I was analysing one, the what the the sex questionnaire actually for Japan, and it was um, it was all about how aroused you were, which is quite funny. Um, I mean, it's funny to read; like we just have a laugh about it sometimes. But <laughs> it was, um, and it was all different levels, going from like not very to very, and we needed an explanation about what the top response option was. So, what is very? Yeah, and you had such a variation between countries. So, like in Japan, it would be um, when you you see a girl a bit of her girl's shoulder um, oh, right. and that was very that was quite high and and then in russia no excuse me this is quite rude but in russia someone when i'm i'm so excited that my my wife won't be able to walk after and and things like that and they'll be really like <laughs> <laughs> i mean that probably has to get edged out but um <laughs> we'll see <laughs> but there are some really quite um honest answers in the in the questions uh, in the um the rephrasings right 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 yeah that's interesting because it i mean it speaks to like the local sort of i guess sexual mores um but then also their understanding of what the word arousal means um just from a language point of view so that's that's one of the like few ways we kind of analyze that element of things yeah i guess it must be also challenging to do the analysis of the interview 
Um, like, like, cause, okay, here, here you've done this interview and, uh, you've asked, uh, you, you know, all of these, these questions, you've elicited these, these responses that are giving you some clarity here and there about what, what to do. But then, um, the, there's another additional step after that, where you're analyzing that interview and trying to, um, make decisions, right? Yes, definitely. Um, there is a lot of back and forth between the people who are analyzing. So like myself as a project manager, I would usually be analyzing one and the lead linguist. We just go back and forth and really dig deeper with some of the questions. If if it's not satisfactory what they've written and how they've rephrased their options or how they've demonstrated their understanding, um, then we'll go back and say, oh, could you actually ask this question in particular and see the response to that um, and try and elicit like a longer response or, or a bit more. So we had one when we were doing the um, the Bristol stool scale and a lot of the, which is the, I think, um, I don't know if you've mentioned this before in like other podcasts, but it's a, it's a popular stool scale with the, the seven types yeah. of foods that you can have. And we worked on the translations for 80 different languages and it came out with so many different reports on it and how they'd understood it. But some of them were very confused about why are we saying sausage shaped? Um, what's a sausage? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> And sometimes the translation has gone through and just accepted what it said in the original and just translated it. And they're like, we just don't know what a sausage is. So um, it's really hard for us to understand just by reading the, <laughs> <laughs> reading the description next to it. So, so then it when you translate that, it's like, uh, you're like, okay, we need to change this from sausage to something else. But then does it have to be a food item or like <laughs> any, anything <laughs> with the... Exactly, exactly. And that's the sort of questions we ask and we say like, well, actually just think of, anything that would give the same consistency and the same shape and it would be more common in your country. So things like sausage shape were changed to tamarind shape. Ah. Or things like hard lumps like nuts were changed to fruit core because nuts weren't as common. So fruit cores were like the Uh inside of the nectarine um, in some of like the Arabic speaking countries um, and things like fluffy pieces. Um, they were like, they couldn't convey the word fluffy. And I was like, oh, like a cloud. And they're like, oh, we don't really use the same descriptive words for a cloud. Um, we'd say something like cotton-like. Ah, so of I was course. Like, okay, that's a good equivalent. So that's where we kind of see that, yeah, they haven't understood it. It just, it needs that little bit of more probing to find out if it's really, really understood. Um, and we had things like as well, sausage, but which sausage? Because there were so many types in, um, in Poland and Germany, for example. <laughs> they said, should we say a specific sausage? Um, and that's when you really get to the, <laughs> the nitty gritty. <laughs> and so what do you decide for a country like Germany? I guess you you do have to pick a, <laughs> a sausage. Yeah. And then <laughs> we get a consensus on who thinks the best sausage fits that particular stool type. <laughs> <laughs> and then it probably puts them off sausage for, for a fair while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, right on, right on. So, so like, uh, okay. So when, when you're doing these, um, these studies, like how many people do you need to talk to, um, until you feel like you have a good statistical sample size that's, that's representative? They're usually quite small. So they're around about five people. Um, and they're a mix of, of male and female. Um, and then we always ask for a mix as well of professions. So we're getting, uh, and also um, different sort of rating, like if they finished school or if they finished college or if they've got a PhD, for example, just mm-hmm. so we're getting a, a range of 
of a demographic. We get we're seeing people who've got a low literacy level, a high literacy level, and that really gives us a better analysis because we're getting five different people to give full responses on each part of the text to say how they they interpreted it. Um, Because you'll always have an anomaly as well. You'll always have one who's like, I don't like this question. I'm not going to answer it. Or or who really understands it in such a bizarre way that you haven't even considered it at all. And you will need the usually the interview's um, input to say, look, this was just the one-off. It was just an anomaly. Everyone else understood it in the same way. And it is understood. They just took a different angle. Because some people, you know, they think outside the box. They've they may have like thought, you know, a couple of thoughts further than the actual text itself. Um, and you need to, you do still need to analyze that. But yeah, generally it'd be five five people. Um, with children, it could be a bit, a few more. Um, it's a little bit harder, especially with different age groups to analyze their, their feedback because it's usually a bit shorter. And then, and then depending on the size of the questionnaire or how many like variants are in it or things like that. Like we sometimes get versions where they want the Arabic to be standard for multiple countries. So then we'll test it in lots of different countries because we want it to be understood everywhere. We don't want, I don't know, you can have one rude word in one country that's a very neutral word in another and you just don't want that to happen. And then they they launch this questionnaire and people in Morocco are really offended because we've used a word that is only neutral in Saudi Arabia. Right, so, right. That's that's where we kind of we do tests on a larger scale is if we're doing a version for multiple like one language version but for multiple countries uh, French French or Spanish is another one as well. Are there countries that that you avoid um, just because of these cultural differences are too difficult um, or make your study too difficult? No, um, generally things are based on where the condition is most prevalent. Right. So the studies want to be held in those countries, and that's usually where the decision comes from for why they're translated into certain languages. Um, I mean, they might find that I don't know diabetes is is more common in Europe or something, so they'd want that all of the diabetes questionnaires to be translated to all the European languages, and then they'll be testing them in those countries. Um, so we don't really have a decision of why it's translated for a certain country. That that is based on data and like the condition, the the target area that it's going to go out in. Um, it's just afterwards that they might say, oh, let's try and make a version that could be applicable to multiple countries. So let's create a universal French mm-hmm. or a universal Spanish. And those are really the trickiest things to create because especially in Spanish, you just have so many variants. Um, mm-hmm. They can say things across the border from Argentina to Chile and some parts they just won't understand each other. So th- those ones are really, really hard to do, especially if they contain idiomatic phrases like um, I've got butterflies in my stomach or I'm feeling blue. You're just not going to get the right. Um, it's going to be almost impossible to get an idiomatic equivalent that works in every single Spanish speaking country. Right, right. Yeah. Well, like I, I speak Spanish and uh, I've read, uh, well, I, I tried to read uh, The Savage Detectives by Roberto Bolaño, who's a Chilean writer, and it was impossible. Like, uh, and I was, I was, I remember I was riding in a car with a bunch of Spanish people from Spain and yeah. uh, like every, I don't know, other sentence, I would ask them the meaning of a word and no one in the car knew either. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's, it's very particular per area. I mean, you can get hyper-localization as well, where within one language, you've got other words. So I'm, I'm from Wales mm-hmm. and I'm from South Wales, and in North Wales, they say for cake, the word cake, they say kaken. Um, but 
I'm from South Wales and I say Taishan. So <laughs> we say different words um, just from where we are within the same country, within the same language. Um, and, and this can happen in multiple different countries as well. Like I know in France, they, they use different words for, um, I used to live in Bordeaux and they used to use the word uh, push for sec, which was a bag. Um, ah. and, and rather than pain au chocolat, you know, the little pain au chocolate mm. uh, things, they are very, very, very proud that they call them chocolatine and it cannot be called anything else. <laughs> they will correct you at the bakery if you call it anything else. Right, right, right. Well, I, I think I've tried to order a noisette, uh, the, the, the small coffee, yeah. uh, a couple of times in different parts of France and, and they also didn't, uh, didn't know. I don't speak French though, so like... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's a sudden French French thing as well. Yeah, so it's 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 like trying to find out where where we need to localize and where is appropriate, I guess, where um, we use maybe just a standard term and not try to hyper localize something. Right, right. And so, well, you know, all, honestly, all all of this sounds like uh, like great fun, um, <laughs> and it sounds like you enjoy your job. I really do. Yeah, I've had some really great experiences. Um, I've had, we've done like discussions with uh, people in Nepalese, um, which was really hard because some were based in Nepal, some were based in America. We've had to do like sort of online interviews, discussions um, across like crazy timeframes. Um, I've done some languages that I never even knew existed before. Um, one of my favorites was Brunyankoli for Uganda. Um, and it's a Bantu language. It's got It's got like seven different names for the same thing. So some people might call it Nankoli or Bunkoli. Um, it, it, and it was, it was really quite a struggle to actually get the right linguist for it. Um, and then it became, we, we realized it became even harder when we actually started the interviewing stage because, or even the translation stage, because we learned that the words life and health in Runyankoli were exactly the same term. Mm. They didn't distinguish between them. Um, And the more we probed, I said, there has to be, there has to be a separation. These are two very different concepts. And they said, no, for us, if your health is good, then your life is good. Right, right, right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I guess, I guess like the, the go full circle back to the Vitaxis name, because um, vi vitality is, uh, if you were saying vitality, that's kind of, yeah, I mean, it means uh, healthy, right? Or health, kind of, or strength. Uh, but then it also has root with that that with the word life in Latin. I'm assuming, right? Yes, yes, it does. Yeah, uh -huh. and I suppose there is that kind of inevitable link between the two, health and yeah. life. Yeah. All oh, right. On. So, um, okay. Last question: When you do do the 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 debriefing, and then you okay, you discover all these things. Like, if if you have to make like significant changes. Um, To the questions like what do you do then do you have to go back and repeat the cognitive debriefing or or do you just make the changes and, and move on no we do we do repeat the testing yeah so like if they think that oh actually this word would be better so sometimes one participant might make a suggestion that is really good but because the they might be the fifth person to have done the interview it's not been practiced on the other ones or like tested to check understanding from everyone So they'll, they'll say, the lead linguist will make a decision to say, actually, this is quite a good alternative. Or, or maybe they'll suggest that, um, could we put something in brackets to just clarify this word a bit more um, that they might not have understood because it might be too complex. 
and um, they'll go back and then they'll test it again. So we'll have like a little, it'll be just like an addend, an amendment to the report with like extra section tested and then, and then we'll analyze that again. It won't be go through the full questionnaire because it usually is just a few spots that need to be changed. Like mm-hmm. when we had, um, we had one on kidney disease and it was all about the types of moderate activities and we found that a lot of the people were seeing, uh, so what the moderate activity, sorry, as the examples were things like vacuuming, bowling, and golf. Mm-hmm. And we found out through cognitive debriefing, they'd been translated perfectly into these, those activities, but the people were saying like, I've never played golf. I don't even know how you play it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like, it was seen as like elitist sport, right. especially in certain countries. And they were like, oh, I've literally no idea what they do. <laughs> yeah. um, so we were like, okay, should we drop that example, but replace it with something else to give them an idea of a moderate activity. Um, and so some of them changed it to um, gathering berries and mushrooms as an equivalent, because it's something that they would do in like a daily life. And then other people agreed and said, yeah, that, that is a suitable thing that we would do generally, maybe as a family. Or things like forest walking or bowling was changed to Tai Chi. Um, vacuuming wasn't that familiar in a lot of countries. They said, I know what it is, but that's like what some rich people have. We use a sweeping brush. There's no need to have a vacuum cleaner. Right. Um, and, and that kind of thing. So there's all these like kind of cultural adaptations that we pick up on during there. Um, we even had ones that like, it was one of our fine motor skills questionnaire. And it was about, because sometimes already in the source version, they're quite um, localized without meaning to. So they've got cutting a steak. Mm-hmm. Now, you wouldn't even eat a steak in India. So <laughs> we couldn't yeah. say that. Yeah, exactly. It's quite offensive to even like consider that. So in, in some of the Indian languages, it turned into tearing a chapati or tearing a naan. And it was, for, it was localized for those countries and uh, for those locales to say whatever was most appropriate to them. Because we don't want to offend people and, and make them feel really uncomfortable. And they'll say, oh, they'll just ignore that question as well because they'll be like, well, that's really offensive. <laughs> to say. Right. Yeah. And uh, so, so slightly off-topic question, but um, it sounds like, like, do you like to travel? I do. I love traveling. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, bad on travel. This is driving me crazy, the lockdown. I've usually traveled to about six or seven places each year. Right. For for work, do you, do you get to travel um, to all these different places? or um, Not so much for work. Um, it's more uh, just pleasure trips, um, just exploring different cultures. And um, I try and meet local people and chat with them and learn a few phrases in the language and things like that. Yeah, cool, cool. Yeah, well, you know, it's nice to talk to people um, in the industry that really love their jobs. Like, uh, it's it's very inspiring. It's 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 so positive. Like, I I think most of the people in the language industry do love their jobs. Um, I think they really do. I, they they're all about communication as well. I find. Yeah. And they really love to chat and explore and and learn about other cultures. I've got a lot of colleagues. Um, current and, and ex-colleagues who we all love traveling, we'll all share travel notes and or even go traveling together and things like that. And, and always like telling each other about, oh, I just learned this about some Russian uh, phrase that you can do this with. And I was like, oh, and we're all really fascinated <laughs> in our own language geeky way. Um, <laughs> but for us, it, it really is quite fascinating. Right, right. Cool. Well, um, I love my job too. And, uh, and I hope that I was, uh, an okay interviewer. Like we're talking about the interview <laughs> part. <laughs> yeah. I, 
<laughs> I can't great. see you, um, but uh, but you passed. Um, <laughs> Thank the, you. Yes. <laughs> cool. Great. Um, so, is there any 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 missing killer anecdotes before we sign off? Uh, any any missing stories, linguistic nuggets? Linguistic nuggets. Um, <laughs> I feel I feel like some of them I should have mentioned earlier, but there was um, like as well with the certain languages that don't specify different body parts, and you've got Jahai, um, which is spoken in Malaysia, which they don't have any words for mouth, face, or leg. Ah. Um, so you can imagine if you do know. Where do they speak that, by the way? Like, which part of Malaysia? In um, Taman Najeri. Oh, right on, right on. I traveled a lot out there, so that's why I'm asking. It. Oh, okay, great. Um, mm. Yeah, so they, they don't have words for those parts because they'll just have a word for a head. So they don't need to um, specify, like, what is on that face. Like, you've got a mouth and that, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, there's there's always, like, these just fascinating little bits about different languages. Um, yeah. And there's, like, Cebuano which is um, spoken in the Philippines, they don't have a standardized spelling. Like when they spell written down, it should follow the pronunciation. Mm -hmm. But you have like Sopuano spoken in multiple areas and it's heavily influenced by Spanish because it was, the Philippines was colonized by the Spanish as well. And you, we had multiple linguists saying, no, she spelt it wrong. No, he spelt it wrong. And no one could agree on, on, a, on a standardized <laughs> spelling. But the most frustrating thing was is that you could see that it was definitely spoken in the same way because even as you saw the phonetic, uh, like the spelling change, you could see phonetically it was essentially the same. Like changing, right. like in English, a PH to an F. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't make any difference, but it's very frustrating when you're having multiple people telling you, no, you spell it this way. No, you spell it that way. Right. Yeah, this all sounds like, it sounds like you have like little little word puzzles, little linguistic word puzzles. Uh, it is a bit, yeah. <laughs> Trying to piece together what we can, what we can't do, what works. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and learning about these languages as we go as well. Because when we get to the cognitive debriefing stage, we really start to get a picture about the culture, the people. I mean, it's a small group of respondents, but we really kind of, you get to look, know a bit more about their personalities. So I, like, for example, we've got um, an excellent Russian, uh, he's a Russian-Ukraine linguist, and he he just brings out the best and sometimes the funniest answers out of people, um, no matter what the question. He gets them um, cracking jokes and all sorts. And it's quite, it's lovely to read those reports because you really you get a feel that you're in the room with them. And, and you're like, oh, yeah, they definitely understood it, even though they haven't rephrased it perfectly they've shown such a cognitive understanding by cracking that joke or you know be it saying this or that that you, they've really understood it right so i think we can we can sign off i hope that the the listeners are inspired um oh no there's one one other thing i was thinking before we sign off it's just a thought but like i, I really think that some of these techniques that are used in life sciences but like it, especially this cognitive debriefing part i think there are other like industries or or other you know localization projects types that could benefit from a similar sort of um, method or workflow, you know, like uh, it's just a thought. Like uh, if you were translating, um, like really like transcreation text, for example, slogans, 
branding. Yeah, yeah. branding. Yeah. I, and I, I kind of wonder if we if they if they are using these methods. I think we have to do a podcast about it. <laughs> there are similar areas. Yeah. So because we so we essentially build apps that can be worked on tablets or website or on your phone. And we have another step after when they've been created that it's the user acceptance testing, mm-hmm. UAT, which is quite common in like the digital world where they'll test something on people to see if it, it's mainly to test if it works. But we take the approach that we also see if like it is fully understandable, if it is logical to them, like if it works in the way that they are expecting it to work. Because some countries, you know, they might change the way that they have like a landing page somewhere else. And it might be more common to start with like a little little video or something first. Or it's to try and see with people in the real world, what works, what doesn't work, what's suitable for the country. Do we need to translate our logo? Do we need to spell it out in, I don't know, in characters? Um, like even our company name, it's it's written in a Latin alphabet. Um, so we, like, should we consider having the same thing written out in, in different character languages? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose that's, that's an interesting, interesting thing. If you change your, your name into like, for example, Arabic characters, maybe sometimes they wouldn't like it actually. Maybe they would prefer that it have the, the Roman, the Roman characters. Yeah. I don't know. But it's like in, um, I think it's Coca-Cola, like the name, the name itself was like seen as inappropriate. Right. I think it's something about a tiny thumb. So I can't remember what it was off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, and now it's sort of been rebranded to me like Tasty Thumb. So, um, Tasty Thumb. Tasty Fun. Fun. Oh, fun. Not okay. fun. <laughs> oh, I thought you said thumb. I was like, ah, oh, right, right on. <laughs> cool all right well thanks for coming on it was a really great uh, really great show just love to hear you talk about stuff you like <laughs> it's lovely chatting with you too thanks for tuning in to this episode of the international bus podcast brought to you by wordbee to learn more about our translation management system check out our website at wordbee.com and be sure to subscribe to the podcast for release notifications until next time